You've almost made it all the way through. A um, couple things to mention. Uh, the, um, there's a couple of books or sources that I'm pulling from uh, on this. One uh, is this book, which uh, is really, I, I mean, it's new. Let me see when this thing was published. 2018. So this is a pretty new book, uh, but it's palatable, it's readable. It quotes all of the other good people that I would tell you to go read. That's always helpful to me. It's called Anxious Church, Anxious People, How to Lead Change in an, a- in an Age of Anxiety. So this is going to quote Edmund Friedman. Edwin Friedman is another guy you could go and read. Maybe some of you have. He's written things like A Failure of Nerve. That's a little bit more didactic. It's a little bit more dry. Um, but if you're that kind of a person, you might actually like his work. Uh, I'm also going to be pulling... Um, I uh, can't, can't remember. Uh, Living Without Worry is, is Tim Lane's book. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit here about Christian tension on anxiety. All of us in our life or at some part of the week or some part of the day. Some people live, if we're on a 0 to 100 scale, some people already start at 10 or 15%, right? And then they just go up from there, but they don't ever go to 0 So some people are more anxious than others. That's the case for me, actually. Because I grew up in the environment that I grew up in, um, if you grew up in a if you grew up in a broken home, um, and by broken I mean like a divorced home, or if you grew up in a home that had some unpredictability in it, like alcohol, you're probably more anxious than you're willing to admit. Um, that doesn't mean that those are the anxious people in the room and nobody else is. It just means that that was an acute press point on your soul as you were growing up, And so you can't deny it. It's actually better and healthier for you to embrace it and go like, oh, okay, Uh, I got some issues um, based on my family of origin, and I just need to come to terms with my different type of anxiety than the person who's grew up in a pretty, their nuclear family was pretty legit, pretty good, pretty decent, and then they just kind of got nervous about a test and their different type of uh, push. So as we talk about this, I want you to be thinking about like, okay, what do I get anxious about the most? What do I tend to, when my anxiety bubbles to the surface, what is it doing? On the way over here, um, I have a, this uh, on friendship, because I think friendship has fallen on hard times, especially among males, and especially among males in the church. And I was talking to, I have three good friends that I'm talking to all of the time. Now, some of you have like nine good friends you're talking to all the time. I'm pretty lucky to have three. So I have three good friends that I'm talking to all the time, and these men are like, they know me really well. This is outside of my marriage. They, these guys are like in my life, and one of them calls me on the way over here. He happens to be really wealthy. He got wealthy like independently overnight. It was just, it's kind of a crazy story about a business thing that happened. Well, before that deal happened, he was super anxious. And so I remember going to his home, him calling me late at night, praying for him, Eventually, he was able to sell this company, which was a contributor to part of his anxiety. But he was an anxious person before that company, and he was, he's still an anxious person after. So if you think money will solve your anxiety problems, it won't. Because on the way over here, he called me. He was super anxious about something that was going on with one of his daughters. He's crying. 
So if, if you tend to think, wow, if I just had a little bit more money, or if I was independently wealthy, I'd, your, ang- your anxiousness is in there, it's cooking, and if the enemy can turn it up, he's going to. The goal here, the Christian tension on anxiety, the goal here is that Christians in the church must have a proper understanding on anxiety, both the appropriately to it. Anxiety has a spiritual implication. It also has a physiological implication to you because when you get anxious, stuff happens. Your back gets tight. Your neck gets tight. Maybe um, something else happens. Who knows what it is for you? Um, For me, what happens is my neck gets tight, and I start realizing, oh, I'm getting, I'm kind of nervous. It has a physiological implication for you. So here's a couple of assumptions. Concern is good and human, but overconcern leads to anxiety. So concern is normal. If you're not concerned about something, then you're not human. Um, it's pretty natural and normal to be concerned about certain things. Some, that's a really important biblical distinction. I realize I might be going out on a ledge, believing that by myself, um, depending on your camp, depending on your church uh, background, some, some things like that. The, the part that gets sinful is when it becomes your identity, you don't want to be free from it. That's where I would actually call it sinful. So uh, that's my answer to your question at the, at the end when I ask for questions. You're going to say, is anxiety sinful? I would say it depends. It depends sometimes on if you want to be free from it or not, or if you're believing promises of the gospel amidst your anxiety or not. Some scriptures that are helpful, these are all scriptures that are helpful to anxiety. Either They either speak to anxiety or they, speak, they can speak to you in the middle of your anxiety. Uh, I just actually preached on Psalm 23 at Cormdale this summer, which was really fun because, I mean, who gets to preach on Psalm 23? Like, that was, like, amazing. We, the way we go through, the, in the summer, we spend, like, six to eight weeks going through the Psalms. We literally started at Psalm 1, and we're just going to keep going. So the fact that I got to preach on Psalm 23 was like jackpot because that's not going to get preached on again at our church for a while. <laughs> but I was like pretty stoked about it. Um, here's some definitions for you. Everybody has their own definition of anxiety. Here's, um, so therefore, I'm giving you three, okay? I'm giving you a couple. Clinical anxiety is the perpetual state of being alert. If you went to a psychologist, they would tell you that anxiety is the perpetual state of theological implications because you can't sleep at night or something's going on, and so they're going to try to... The biblical counseling definition, or one biblical counseling definition by Tim Lane is, which I think is helpful, is anxiety is over-concern. So again, concern's good and human, over-concern leads to anxiety. Here's Edwin Freeman on anxiety. It's what we feel anytime we face a real or perceived threat. It's the fight or flight response. Two types of anxiety. One is acute, our responses to immediate or present threat. Second one, is chronic, our responses to imagined or perceived threats leading to a baseline level of emotional reactivity. Now, this is why I'm telling you that I'm an anxious person, because I'm always thinking about these things. I'm always, um, I'm not perpetually making up bad scenarios in my head, but I am prepared for bad scenarios. I'm the guy who sits when I go to the restaurant, I, I'm never the guy who sits with my back to the door. I think that's foolish. What if somebody bad comes in, the, comes in the place and your back is to the door? That's a bad idea. Most of you are like, bro, we just read Ephesians, like sovereignty. Based on my story, based on some of the work that I do, that 
I'm nervous, right? I could justify all day long that, like, well, you're a protector if you sit, you know, with your eyes facing the door instead of your back. And don't you want to protect your family? I mean, like, naturally, some of us are more prone to certain types of anxiety than others. Um, I serve as a chaplain with the FBI, which is Nebraska and Iowa. It includes Nebraska and Iowa. These people have crazy stories, okay? There's a field office here in Davenport. Um, well, not here in Moline, but over there in Davenport. Um, and one of the things that I get to do with the FBI is uh, the federal government's actually pretty smart about mental health sometimes, and uh, they make you debrief about crazy scenarios that you go through. And those are anxious things. Um, they create more anxiety for people. Um, but I, I see a lot of anxiety, and I experience a lot of anxiety myself. So what I want to do is give you some scriptures. We're going to look at two classic scriptures on anxiety. I'm going to give you this anxiety spectrum. And then I'm going to end with, here's kind of an idea on helping those with anxiety. And that will be our time together. So again, cloud, not Holy Spirit cloud, uh, like earlier. But the, um, the opposite of anxiety would be indifference, right? It all you could care less. That would be to be indifferent, right? This is my eye. I don't know how you feel about it. It's kind of creepy, actually. This would be concern. So this would be normal to just be concerned. Street, that would be bad for them, right? So I'm concerned that when the ball goes out of the driveway, they're going to chase the ball into the, into the street. That's not anxiety. That's just normal, fatherly, motherly care, Three-year-olds don't know that cars come down the street all the time, and they just want the ball. Now, if I'm consistently positioned at the bottom of the thing, and I'm envisioning my kid getting hit by a car, and I'm envisioning a bunch of bad things happen, and I can't get, out of my, get that out of the state of mind, that's anxiety. So that's not concern. We drifted towards anxiety. So when we drift towards anxiety, this is from Tim Lane. This would be worry. This would be, uh, I mean, you can call it anything anxiety, or I think it's helpful that Tim Lane calls it over-concern. Now, if I don't let my kid play in the driveway anymore, and I especially don't let him play with the ball, that's a little intense, isn't it? Like, you could just say, dude, what if the ball runs into the street? Okay, that can happen, but let's deal with it when it happens. Let's still go play ball, right? That's where I start to get a little overconcerned. So, Tim Lane says, from worry, a bunch of things give birth to other things. General anxiety disorders, where I'm consistently and perpetually nervous, that's what somebody would call a disorder. Then it goes into a phobia, where I'm nervous about certain things. Then we can get into legit panic attacks. A panic attack would be something where I'm unable to make sense of my current surroundings. I become paralyzed by that situation. It's usually a compilation of things that are undealt with. Then I would move towards acute stress disorder where somebody clinically would actually call me I would, or they would actually label me as some, some type of, instead of it just being a disorder, it would be acute stress disorder, um, meaning 
I can't not perceive a threat all of the time. I can't just live a normal life because, or like my neighbor, I can't just live like my neighbor because I'm consistently nervous about something bad happening all the time. And that would lead me to OCD, and then that would eventually lead to PTSD. So, uh, OCD gets joked about a lot in our culture. Like, oh, I'm kind of OCD about that. Um, which could be true, but sometimes that's actually a mask for, like, sort of that thing. So, this is, this is strictly from, uh, this spectrum is completely from Tim Lane and his book, Living Without Worry. So, grab your Bible. I want to do uh, a quick scripture exercise with you so that this is from scripture and not just some dude from Omaha. So, the classic verse on anxiety comes out of Philippians 4, right? You were taught this as a young child, if you had some decent parents, or from your uh, Sunday school teacher or from somebody. The minute you got nervous, the first time you got nervous and you told somebody about it, they said, hey, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, present your request to the Lord. So let me read this, starting in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The reason why I'm giving you this passage is because, um, because it's classic and because it's scripture. But what do we know about Paul? Well, we know that we get Romans, which is uh, very linear. It's very didactic. The Apostle Paul is a very black and white, right-wrong kind of thinker, right? He's also writing to Philippians. He's writing to it. He loves this church the most, he tells us. We learn that from Scripture, basically, that nobody has. So he's basically saying, hey, do not be anxious about anything. Well, again, to joke a little bit about the Enneagram for a moment, if you're on the spectrum of like 891, somewhere in there, now I just ratcheted up your anxiety by telling you to not be anxious, right? Especially if you're, because now I just made it a moral thing. Hey, stop it. You're anxious? Knock it off. That's not helpful, is it? Like, it's, and, and I can do that in the most Christian way. Like, I, right? Like, we do this, right? Where you're like, man, I'm just really nervous about this or that. And I'd be like, Philippians, man, don't be anxious. And I can look at you with the eyes of Jesus and just moralize that thing right now. And all I'm doing is ratcheting up your anxiety. So now I made it like a, now you're breaking the rules. See what I'm saying? So not if you're, not if I'm trying to be helpful, okay? <laughs> um, now, is it true? Is it in scripture? Should we use it? Yes, sometimes. But we should probably use the other parts, like anxiety by helping you count the evidences of grace in your life. Let me help you by rejoicing in the Lord. Let me remind you of verse, the end of verse 5. The Lord is at hand. Like when we're anxious, we think this is it. Like it's me and whatever's happening right now in this circumstance, and I get super tunnel visioned, and now what? Okay, well, no, the Lord is at hand. 
Okay, so the Lord's at hand. Now I move towards don't be anxious about anything, but you're moving me towards prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, I'm going to present this to the Lord. So if I just say, do not be anxious, that's not helpful, because Paul's actually telling me, but do it with prayer, okay? Then what comes? The peace of God. The same thing that's true about Ephesians 1, right? Same author, Ephesians, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. You might not get it. You might not get it. It surpasses your understanding. What's that going to do? It's going to guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. Let me, let me show you something that's, I think, more helpful to your anxious friends. 1 Peter 5, verses 6 through 11. So, you can use Philippians if you want. If it's helpful, feel free. Do your descriptive work. Know who you're working with. Know what's helpful. Know what's not helpful. If they're a rule follower, I wouldn't Philippians 4, 6 them. I, I just wouldn't. I don't think it's going to be that helpful. 1 Peter 5, starting in verse 6. Humble yourselves. Okay, that's a posture. Wow, that's strong. So that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Okay, well, that just ratcheted it up again. Thanks for that. Verse 9, resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brothers, brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is a little bit more helpful, especially to your rule follower friend who gets anxious because you're asking them to do a couple things. Humble themselves, first of all. Get them out of their circumstance by just taking a certain posture under the Lord. Under what Lord, though? The mighty hand of God. That's serious strength. That's Red Sea type of strength. So that he could exalt them at the proper time. Then, verse 7, casting all your anxieties upon him. Think about it this way, like when Jesus cast out the demons in the Gospels, he sent them into the pigs, okay? If you think about it that way, send that anxiety somewhere so that it goes somewhere. Well, where are you sending it? You're casting it, all your anxiety on him. Why? Why would you do that? Because he cares for you. Hey, God cares for you. Be sober-minded, though. Be watchful because you have an enemy. You have a real enemy. Now, if you work me through this passage when I'm anxious, I might, that might ratchet up my anxiety as well, but it's okay because you've already asked me to humble myself. You've already told me I can send my anxiety somewhere because God cares for me, but you're also going to be honest with me about good and evil because I have a real enemy, and my enemy is actually not my anxiety or this particular circumstance or situation that I'm in, it's actually the devil who's prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So I have a role then to resist him, firm in my faith, knowing basically that Satan loves me anxious. He doesn't want me free. But man, if you can actually create a real enemy for me, and it's not my anxiety, and I'm a saint, according to Ephesians, right? Like, and I'm beloved, Oh, now I can fight. Now, we, now it's game on. And also, at the end of the day, I'm headed, a bunch of other people have suffered, so that's fine. You just normalized it for me, because also in my anxiety, I tend to think, 
is this is, nobody else is going through this. This must just be me. This is my particular circumstance, which is true, it's personal to you, but anxiety is normal for everybody. We tend to think, we get very tunnel vision, we tend to just think this is, nobody else is like this, I'm the only person like this, I can't stop being like this. Well, not according to Ephesians 5. These things have been experienced by your brothers throughout the world, and after you've suffered just a little while, you just put a time, time gap on it for me, it's just a little bit. And it is just a little bit in the grand scheme of things. Who has called me to my eternal glory in Christ, will him store, do these things. He's going to do these things eventually. He's going to restore, confirm, and strengthen, and establish me. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So there's two different scriptures for you in your arsenal for anxiety, for you personally, but also in the ways that you help people. If you do your descriptive work, you can be more helpful depending on what scriptures you choose to use. Which I hope, by the way, that Ephesians passage, or that Ephesians exercise stuff is somewhat fun for you, but also somewhat empowering, because Paulson is saying in his book, Seeing With New Eyes, you could just use Ephesians. We were just in Ephesians the whole time for like an hour and a half. We didn't go outside of it except for that Genesis 2.24 passage. The idea there is like, let me get some scripture into me that kind of creates some muscle memory, and I can't use it all the time, but I could use it if I... Here's, here's what Tim Lane says. Well, here, here let, me give you these, let me give you these five things to remember when facing anxiety. These all come out of the First Peter 5 passage. Number one, God's strength. So this is, I should say there, five things to remember out of Ephesians, or uh, sorry, out of First Peter 5 when facing anxiety. Number one, God's strength. Think about it as God, God parting the Red Seas. God is the, the mighty hand of God, verse 6. Secondly, God's care. So verse 7, I'm casting all my anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for me. So I'm remembering God's care. That's, by the way, you're a part of the only religion in the world where, you're, where the God that you worship cares for you. Everybody else's God in any other religion is performance-based and it does not relate. You, you worship a relational God. That's huge. I mean, we should just stop every now and then and be like, wow, that is amazing, isn't it? You can cast your anxiety on him because he cares for you. So remember God's care. Third, remember your role. That's verse 7, part A. It's, it's like, especially if you're an anxious person, it's familiar to you. So like, you are in your own head, you're in your own heart, your, your neck hurts for you, and so that's familiar for you though, right? But, Scripture says, throw it. Your job is to cast it, and that will be unfamiliar for you because the familiarity of anxiety is normal to you, right? So you need to cast those things upon the Lord. Sometimes people ask me like, about the chaplain work because I, I do some chaplain stuff with OPD in Omaha and then with the FBI, and people, like, they'll be like, how do you do that? I'm like, it's really easy. Anxiety is really normal to me. I'm in anxious situations all the time. It's not really easy. But it, it is interesting how my family of origin, my growing up story, creates this place where I can remain differentiated, if you will, into these anxious systems, into these anxious places, and become helpful to people because I just, I'm very familiar with anxiety. I breathed anxiety as a kid growing up. So it's not that scary to me. So like when friends, we were just with some friends a couple weeks ago in Minnesota at their lake, 
we're swapping stories about work, and so I told some weird chaplain stories. Um, they get really bizarre, and my friend was just like, how do you do that? And my wife said, Dusty has a really, he's really good at sucking the anxiety out of a system. I was like, oh, I don't know if that's good, but yeah, that sounds about accurate. Like, so you're conditioned for these things. If you're an anxious person, it's pretty, it's, it doesn't pay, by the way, it's, it's volunteer. So, yeah. Um, so your role is to cast those things on God. Now, if you're ministering to an anxious person and they choose not to cast their anxiety out of them and onto the Lord, that's up to them. Your job is done there to a certain degree. You've counseled them, you've coached them, you've cut the hole in the roof, you've lowered them down and been like, hey, do you want to get healed or not? I mean, it's not that simple. But like, you're basically saying, like, hey, let's do that right now. Let's, let's throw that on the Lord. Why don't you go ahead and pray, and then I'll pray for you. Um, four, you also need to remember, when facing anxiety, your enemy. This is where uh, verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary. Now, that sounds like anxiety, right? Be sober-minded, be watchful. Watchful sounds like concern. Well, yeah, but be watchful for the right thing, the enemy. Because enemies prowl, according to 1 Peter. Fifth, so basically four is remember your real enemy, and your real enemy, this is parenthetical, is not your anxiety. It's not your circumstance. It's your enemy, especially if you're a child of God. Five, remember where you are headed. You've got to remember the rest of this passage in 1 Peter 5. After you've suffered a little while, God of all grace has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. Eternal glory in Christ, who, by the way, is going to restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That sounds like he's going to do a lot of things. To him be the dominion forever and ever. And by the way, he's called you to it. You can't get out of it. Remember, when facing anxiety. Here's what Tim Lane says about that. If your future, again, I've said this a few times today, like our goal is to give people hope all of the time. If we're not giving people hope, we're not doing our job. If your future between here and the grave is all there is, it would be worth worrying about. If there is an eternity beyond the grave to be spent in hell, separated from the love of God, that should be the only thing that we should worry about. Wonderfully, if you're trusting Christ, neither of these futures is yours. So you shouldn't worry about the first because eternity dwarfs this life. And you don't need to worry about the second because heaven, not hell, is your destiny. So in the ups and downs of life, the stresses and the strains of the uncertain future, let the certainty of your eternal future be what you cling to. Talk to your father to thank him for these truths. Remind yourself of these truths. You may be concerned about next week and next month and next year, but do not be eternal future and enjoy the assurance of that. Whatever life brings you in 20 or 50 or in 200 years, it will bring to you the eternal glory with Christ. Bathe your soul in these truths and talk to your Heavenly Father about them. Thank Him for them and set the future aspect of your naturally perspective. Basically, Tim Lane is saying, quit worrying about life on earth. It's not, and Jesus would say, like, it doesn't add anything to your life, right? Do not worry. It's a command from the Lord. So practical things to help your anxious friend, and then we'll get out of here shortly, okay? Number one, 
learn their story and their sin. Again, this would be the descriptive things. Learn their story, learn their sin. What are they prone to? Where do they come from? I've talked about that already earlier today. Love them more than you preach at them, but preach if needed. They might need the Philippians 4 command, but most likely they just need you to turn down their anxiety for them with the Lord's help. Third, help them celebrate God's proven grace. We talked about this. uh, One of the groups in the Ephesians thing talked a lot about this, just sharing evidences of grace. Because anxious people are always on to the next thing all the time. Like, I do this all the time. Like, as soon as I leave here, I'm going to go, the sermon is written for tomorrow, but I'm going to look at the sermon for tomorrow because this is over, right? So, like, tomorrow's coming, and rather than just getting up tomorrow and just going with whatever the Spirit's doing, I'm already cooking up here. Well, some of that's good, and that's, some of that's good leadership. Some of it's just anxious. God's proven grace. Like, what, what, what would do me better tonight is to go to dinner and be like, man, I'm really glad I ran into so-and-so and so-and-so and start really just praying for people that I've met here and just celebrating the fellowship that we've had here, right? But what we're prone to do is just jump to the next thing, especially anxious people. So, celebrate God's grace. You're going to need to make that a spiritual discipline in your life. This is why I love uh, Foster's book, Celebration of Discipline. I think he's the only author in talking about spiritual disciplines that talks about celebration as a discipline. When I read that part, I was like, oh, I think I got convicted. Because he's basically saying you need to work celebration into your life. And that's especially true if you're anxious. Ask these questions. What's your anxiety communicating to you? How long has it been doing that? Where do you experience this anxiety in your body? What specifically are you experiencing? Get down to the specifics with people and then encourage professional Christian counseling. I I think the church, I think brothers and sisters, I think us in this room can do a lot of the ministry of anxiety that we've handed to the culture to do. I'm not saying we don't need those people sometimes because we do, and I'm not saying we don't need medication sometimes because we do. But I think we've when, when people come to us with anxiety, we get anxious, and then we just try to get them professional help. And they might need it. I'm not saying don't get your, get your friend the help they need. I'm just saying if they're a Christian, I think 1 Peter 5 could go a long ways. And even if it doesn't, that should be your first stop. So I have a pastoral burden, if you will, um, that the church kind of redeems some of the counseling back into the church and the priesthood of all believers and the body, Ephesians again, as it grows up, does its own work for each other. There's, there's a number of times in our church where I'll be meeting with somebody and I'll be like, I have no idea what to tell you. <laughs> but I'm similar go on, and so I think I, think I should connect you to Kim. And in some scenarios, hooking this particular gal up with Kim has gotten a ton of mileage, and she would say, like, oh, that was, that was all I needed. I'm like, well, praise the Lord. Being like, hey, it might not be me, but actually I think I know somebody that you should journey with, that you should walk with as you walk towards the Lord. Okay, so let's talk about this, and um, then I'll get out of your hair, Okay. Helping those with anxiety. Now, there's a lot to be said here. 
from moving from dealing with my own anxiety to helping people with anxiety. This is uh, a quote from this little red book. Um, Anxious Church, Anxious People, How to Lead Change in an Age of Anxiety by Jack Shatama. An effective leader is a non-anxious presence. A non-anxious non-presence is someone who is not anxious, but is also not emotionally connected, not emotionally present. It's easy to be non-anxious when you don't care. Okay, so stop right there. If, if you're completely checked out and you're indifferent, you're not anxious, right? Um, before we go on to this paragraph, I recently had a couple come to me and the situation was their daughter was struggling with some sexual confusion. Okay. Such and such is happening. Would you meet with us? Yes, of course I'll meet with you. So I meet with them. Husband is checked out. Husband is like, fix this. Not out of like over concern, fix this. And I am, my wife's kind of worried about it. Can you encourage them? That's checked out. That's, not, that's a non-anxious non-presence, okay? Now, I think he loves his daughter. I think he loves his wife. He's just not sure how to engage. So after that appointment, I had to call him, and I had to talk to him about, like, hey, dude, I think we should meet again, just you and I. Here's what I, here's what I kind of experienced in that meeting. Um, that was good. It was good for us to chat about that. He's like, yeah, you're right. It's like sometimes, sometimes people just get paralyzed by their circumstances, but I challenged him on this very thing. Like, I realize you're not nervous about it because... Your wife's over-nervous about it, so you're trying to be smart there. But you also need to care a little bit. Like, I need some skin in the game. Okay, moving on. An anxious presence is someone who can't help but let their anxiety spew into the system. They care too much. They are so emotionally connected that they over-function anxiously in others' emotional space. Okay, so we all know those people. Those are the people that ratchet you up instead of helping you. A non-anxious presence doesn't mean that you don't feel anxiety. It means that you contain your own anxiety while staying emotionally connected. It is recognizing the anxiety, I see it, and then being intentional to express self-regulation. So, those are three different categories. Non-anxious, non-presence, basically checked out, indifferent. An anxious presence, and then a non-anxious presence. And obviously what you're after, or what Jack is trying to encourage here, is this non-anxious presence. Um, he's trying to say, hey, you're going to feel some anxiety at times. Your job in that moment is to contain yourself while staying emotionally connected. Basically, I'm trying to communicate that I care, but I'm not going to care to the level that you're caring because you're freaked out about it. My job is to not freak out, right? So I'm going to be intentional about this, and I have to be thinking about all of this way before it's happening. So um, this will happen to you. This happens in your friendships. This happens in your family. What's really good about this book is he goes on from this, this paragraph. This is early on in this book. This particular paragraph is early on in this book. What he goes into next is how people will triangulate you. Uh, this happens a lot in families, right? Where you'll get triangulated into a circumstance. So, um, 
our job in helping people with this Christian tension on anxiety is to both name it and say, like, yeah, anxiety is real. Scriptures talk about it, right? We need, to, we need to use Scripture appropriately and precisely. We should not use it like a hammer. doctor would scalpel out the anxiety in their friend or in their patient, right? So, and also I think it's really good to know your own limitations. I think if your aim is this last person, this non-anxious presence, you have to come to terms with like, hey, I can't handle this. What you're going through, you need somebody else. Like, I'm going to be your friend. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to try to support you. I'll bring you food. But I cannot counsel you. Okay? Um, or if you are going to engage in that and journey with them, then your job is to stay, stay differentiated or intentional about not being anxious. Um, what questions do you have about this? Anxiety. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, I'm answering with a little bit of a yes because I actually just want you to tell us. I want. I kind of want you to tell. So, like, can you can you guys hear in the back? Basically, like, is there a difference between if everybody's anxiety is different? Shouldn't our approach be different sometimes? Right. Like, what, what's actually helpful? What's been helpful to you in the past that's not helpful? Like, you can... Yeah, I think you're right. So I'm a little limited then, right? If somebody won't come to me and tell me. But what's, what should be true of Christians is that they should be in community, right? So at some part, this is beautiful, by the way. Thanks for answering your own question. Um, what's beautiful about what you said, but you actually jumped and assumed, was that if I'm an anxious or depressed person or if I drive around that cul-de-sac too fast and then the wheels come off, is that I have people in my life, and you said that will yell at me, right? But like what you're saying there is like, I have a friend, at least one, that is going to say, hey, we're in the cul-de-sac. Like, we gotta get out. We gotta get out. We gotta get out. Like, the wheels are gonna come off, right? So like, what you're saying is, as a Christian, I've decided to let some people into that. Yeah, and I think that's precise work. Because 
you're not just generally allowing anybody into that. You've built relationship around that and said, hey, here's my limitation or here's my weakness. And in order to embrace my limitation and weakness, I'm going to need community, I'm going to need companionship, and I'm, going to, I'm not going to know when that's happening, and so I'm going to need somebody to tell me. And I think just handing somebody that right is huge. I think that's ridiculously mature to be here pretty soon. I'm going to lose it. And, and you're like, okay, like, that's good to know, you're right? But like, I just think that self-awareness is huge. Yeah, but I, yeah, which is the tension because I can't, I can't make somebody be self-aware, but I can, through friendship, try to sometimes hold up the mirror. What were you going to say? Well, I don't think so. That's, well, I think Tim Lane would argue that it's in order. I'm not going to argue that for him. What would you guys add to this scenario right here that these gals have led us into? What's been helpful for y'all, a friend, journeying with, with somebody? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
That's good. The, the, Paul Tripp says we can't see our own face, yeah. right? Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they can't see themselves. And uh, I think what's really helpful too is like when you were talking about the self-awareness piece, the self-awareness piece is huge. Now, self-awareness without the gospel is just psychotherapy. It's just like you could do that at your job. Like Gallup would pay you to do it, right? Strength finders. But <clears throat> self-awareness plus the gospel is why I actually am a fan of the Enneagram because what the Enneagram does for you pastorally, here's what it does, just so you know, lay people, when your pastor's asking you to take the Enneagram, here's what it's doing. It's like, we've been trying to say something to you for the last three years or whatever. Now you believe us because there's this data connected to it. And there's 27 numbers and some weird satanic diagram. So now you believe us. And, and you're like, oh, yeah, this is totally me. And you're like, uh-huh, we know. Like, thanks for doing the math. But, like, I'm kind of joking. But, but that's a self-aware tool that we can use to have the next conversation. So sometimes I will use the Enneagram to just, with, especially in marriages, to just help people, to help give me another tool to have the same conversation. Um, but self-awareness, just for self-awareness sake, is ridiculous. And the church will do it all day long. You've got to be aware of that. So, so the self-awareness that I get should take me somewhere, right? The more I'm aware of my sin, the more I need the gospel. The more I'm aware of my anxiety, the more I need help, the more I need friendship, right? So like, we've got to let people into these pockets of our life. I did this recently too. Like what, what you need to do too is, especially with these three friends, is uh, especially for pastors, pastors really need this um, because they, they really wants to challenge them um, and they get too established and too in their own ruts. And so with these, especially these three friends, these are all people that my wife can call at any point. And about seven months ago, um, I didn't really get into I wouldn't call it a phobia, but it was really, I was really off the rails. Like, I was, like, nervous about weird stuff and, and good things. Like, I really don't know how we're going to pay this bill. Or I don't, really don't know, like, I was worried about a bunch of stuff. And then I was like, I don't know if I should be in ministry. Like, like when, when anxiety hits me, we could scrap it all. Like, it's not like these things are all sure in my life and... Um, you know, it's just this one little thing I need to figure out. It's No, it's like the wheels are off, people, and I'm going to be a UPS driver, and I'm going to live on 10 acres and not have any friends. Like, that's what my anxiety does. So guess what? My wife called one of my friends. I did not know this. He called me. He asked me a bunch of questions. I was like, man, I don't know. No, I don't think I'm doing well. Here's what's going on. At the end of the call, he said, hey, your wife called me. She wanted me to call you. I was ridiculously thankful. Now, right? But what was ridiculously helpful about that moment was, oh, I was off the rails. 
enough to freak my wife out, not like freak her out in a way that she thought I was like gonna leave the faith, but freak her out in a way that she knew that there wasn't anything she was probably gonna say to me to bring me out of the cul-de-sac. So he has, she has this friend call me. He asks really good questions. He loves me. We have relational equity with one another. And then by him saying, hey, your wife asked me to call you, I was like, it worked. It worked to like give people freedom into my soul and into my struggle and into my anxiety. Um, what I, the reason I grabbed this is because what I meant was like when I say all things are off the rails all the time when my anxiety hits, it's because Ed Welch says fears come in packs, which is true. And it's 2020. And so there are certain people you just have not seen during coronavirus, right? Because coronavirus is a legit thing, but it had, now, I just legitimized it for all of you QAnon people, but like, um, it's a legit thing, but what it's done is give, it's the main scapegoat for fear. Oh, that we actually won't get. See what I'm saying? It just legitimizes, it legitimizes your anxiety. And the culture, if ever, the reason why I wanted to do this talk for y'all is because anxiety's always been a part of our culture, but now it's a bigger part of our culture, and it's not going to go away. And especially for the next couple of years, we have got to be helpful in the anxiety question. Another uh, scripture to add to your uh, Christian tension on anxiety scriptures is Psalm 42. In Psalm 43, it's actually one long psalm, but it's broken up into two different psalms. Um, it's, it's one song. And the, the, the reason we know it's one psalm is because it has the same chorus in both. Psalm 42 and 43 are carried out. Um, and the psalms are ridiculously honest. We don't have time to read it all right now. But what happens in this psalm is the questions of why and when get normalized. What's really good about that, you could just use this text actually right here with your friend, your anxious friend, Psalm 42, um, and then you ask them, hey, tell God what's inside of you right now. Like, hey, Psalm 42, verse 4 and 5, remember, remember when God showed up. Let's thank the Lord together. And then you have to speak truth to them the whole way through. So, uh, hey, that's going to do it for me. Let me pray for y'all. Is... If you disagree with stuff I said because I'm a heretic, then you can email me at cdomaha.com. Or if you really, please don't do that if you think I'm a heretic. Uh, but if you actually want to talk more or, you know, you need resources or whatever. If you want, like I said at the beginning, if you want to learn more about structures and things like that, go ahead and email us. Let me pray. Lord. Super grateful for this room full of learners. Grateful that they have decided to meet here, to learn from one another, to be in community with one another. We do pray your protection upon us. Uh, we realize that it's a little chancy to be here. And so we do pray for your protection. We do pray for your providence in that. Um, I think it's a beautiful thing that you have brought a ton of different pockets of Iowa together here in the Quad Cities to learn, to be 
together, to build relationships with one another, to be unified together. And so, God, we just ask that the gospel would go out, that it would go out in Des Moines, that churches would be planted in Des Moines, that church deep, rich, theological truth in Des Moines. We say the, we say the same thing for Clinton. Man, God, we, as much as we joke about it and even joked about it at lunch, we know that this is a town that needs the gospel. Um, there's a lot of beat up, broken people in Clinton. It is not a sexy city. Nobody wants to go there on purpose. And so we just ask that you would bless our brothers and sisters who, are, who have moved there to drop the gospel into that city, into that town. Would you, would you bless them? Would you make your face shine upon them? Would you multiply their church? Would they multiply uh, small groups, community groups, whatever they call them? And would people come to faith? We pray for addicts to come to faith. We pray for people who are, have been there for decades that you would tell them soon through this church plant that they're actually there to meet the Lord. That's why they're there. So we pray for non-Christians to come to faith. We pray the same thing for both Davenport and Moline. We pray that these churches would grow, these congregations would grow, and that they would grow with non-Christians coming to faith and becoming disciples. of. We pray for all of the churches represented here. Would you bless them? And would you bless these people in this room in their efforts to learn more about you, to pursue wisdom, to pursue knowledge, and to gain it? And I pray that they wouldn't pursue it and gain it in a, in a futile way, but they would use it. They would use it to disciple your people. They would use it to bring glory to your name. And so we pray these things in your name. Amen. Thanks, Jesse. That's it. Hey. Yeah, thanks. Um, ben is a stud. I mean, honestly, like, this dude can administrate. And in a day when administration is not cool, I just want you to know that Ben, if you're a part of Sacred City, you need to hear me on this. Like, there aren't administrative dudes like that. Like, they're, they're there, but they don't want to do the work for the church. They're, they're gifted, but they'd rather go get paid a ton of money to do it. And so, Ben, you kill it here, man. Honestly, like, you are blessing churches. Yeah. Yeah. So, if, you, uh, if you're one of those church planners in the room, make sure you have Ben's number, not mine, because <laughs> you need a lot of help, and he'll give it to you. Love y'all.